You're listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 1. Hi, Mike McGill here. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. Our feature this month is a discussion with Arnold and Porter Senior Associate Amanda Sherwood on recent decisions concerning the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on contractors. Amanda is an experienced claims litigator and has been following these cases closely and advising many of our clients in this area. To quickly introduce Amanda before we get to our conversation, she has a fairly broad practice that involves claims and disputes, bid protests, compliance reviews and non-compliance investigations, and counseling. To highlight just a couple of areas in which she focuses, expert on the Buy American Act and the Trade Agreements Act and other sourcing and country of origin laws, as well as other transaction agreements and alternative funding arrangements. She devotes much of her time to claims litigation and has extensive experience on claims and disputes that involve accounting costs and pricing issues under government contracts. And here's our conversation. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So we're going to discuss the recent decisions concerning the impact of the COVID pandemic on contractors, which is a topic that you've been following closely and writing on. And, and for the audience, we'll leave a link to those materials in our show notes. Maybe to start and set the backdrop for these disputes, what are some of the ways that the pandemic and the knock-on effects, like the disruption in the U.S. and international supply chains, have affected government contractors? Well, it might be quicker and easier to assess the ways in which the pandemic has not impacted government contractors. We've seen impacts in practically every area of contracting, from the mundane to the severe, um, really from minor changes in methods of performance to changes that fundamentally alter the services that contractors provide to entire government programs um, that we (laughs) never contemplated before the past 2.5 years. Um, Another interesting aspect is how these impacts on government contractors have changed over the course of the pandemic. When we found ourselves suddenly working from our kitchen tables back in March 2020, I was fielding questions from contractors facing lockouts from military bases and even an inability to contact a contracting officer who had seemingly disappeared into the ether at one point. The, The government really was not set up for remote work. A wrinkle that I found particularly interesting back at the early days of the pandemic were the cybersecurity issues arising from performing sensitive government contracts from ad hoc, newly established home offices. But we've mostly moved past that part of the pandemic, and instead, now we're finding ourselves dealing with lingering impacts on contractors' workforces and the simply maddening and seemingly never-ending supply chain complications. And looking back to early 2020, we provided guidance, perhaps not not novel, but fairly prescient, I think it's fair to say, to companies about how to best prepare for the foreseeable and inevitable impacts of the pandemic. We published some alerts and articles and offered webinars. And of course, we were counseling clients on a regular basis. To refresh, what were some of those general suggestions that we offered at that time? Beyond the list of issues I I just described, lots of the counseling for me involved questions about stop work orders at the beginning, how to ensure that contractors appropriately mitigated the incurrence of additional costs during stop work orders and documented the costs that they did incur. 
There was also a lot of concern about limitation of costs or limitation of funding clauses as well. To the extent contractors found themselves going out on a limb to protect its workforce, or in some cases, there was even government property that had been left unsupervised during quarantines. And we got some interesting phone calls about how to address that situation. But really, if I had to summarize our advice, it came down to two simple points. First, communicate with your government customer. And second, to document the cost that you're incurring. So many problems can be headed off or at least improved by constant communication in writing, if possible, um, even, even following up an oral conversation with a confirmation email and sometimes can really complete the chain if we're looking, looking back at something uh, up to years later. And you know, while the instruction to document your costs may seem obvious, the key is to document the precise reason why you incurred the cost, as well as the linkage between that cause and the costs. That is, don't submit an invoice for additional labor simply due to COVID-related sick leave. Instead, you know, go the extra mile and save in the file a copy of whatever company policy that requires a certain number of quarantine days and a negative test, or the government's instruction to follow a policy like that and then break out the number of days that this led each impacted employee to go out and accrue. That, that's great. And it may not be new advice or even novel advice, but the last two years have really driven that home. Documenting the cost impact may not be enough. Even documenting the operational impact at a high level may not be. The key is to try to crosswalk from cause to operational impact, including the why, like a company policy to establish reasonableness to the cost impact. And where possible, consider giving the government customer a heads up on the impact and the approach to documenting the impact. Exactly. That's what I call the offensive side of the equation. That is preparing yourself to be situated to, in the future, successfully recover on a request for equitable adjustment or REA or a claim. But the so-called defensive side of the equation is equally important. As is often the case with so-called key-to-the-moment contracting, the tendency can be to just forge ahead and solve problems in real time without pausing to consider the technicalities of the FAR or other applicable regulations. History shows that periods of emergency contracting are often followed by periods of heightened government enforcement. We're talking audits and investigations. So we caution clients to be vigilant and maintain records of all government interactions and to try to not let their normal diligence slip in the face of the recognized national emergency that we were all dealing with. We see that time and again, where contractors are in the highest demand or under the greatest pressure, you can expect the greatest scrutiny downstream in time. You can almost set your calendar to it wartime contracting, contingency contracting, contracting in response to a national disaster. You can add pandemic contracting to that list. So at the outset of the pandemic and this expected wave of impacts to the government and contractors, we could understand the traditional playbook, if you will. But we are all eager for, if we, if we, if we go back in time, we were all eager for indications in the form of laws, policy directives, decisions, or whatever else from the government to inform industry on what to expect in dealing with the impact of the COVID pandemic. One thing we latched onto was a 2020 decision concerning the impact of a different 
prior pandemic on a contractor. Could you explain that case and the upshot of it? Right. This this was really incredible timing for, for a case to come out. This is the Pernick Serka case that was um, CBCA number 5683. It was released literally in April 2020. And it, I think it caused lots of interest in, in the industry and amongst the bar because it seemed directly applicable to the situation that we all seemed inevitably walking down as the pandemic worsened and worsened. So in that case, the contractor was performing a firm fixed price contract in Sierra Leone. It was to construct rainwater capture um, and a storage system for water when the Ebola pandemic broke out. So Pernix did the right thing and immediately requested guidance from its contracting agency. There it was the Department of State on how it should respond to this new novel alarming circumstance of an, of an outbreak of a pandemic. And unfortunately, state refused to provide any guidance at all, instead taking the position that it was the contractor's job to decide how it wanted to react to the situation. So the contractor considered its options and decided to temporarily demobilize and only return to the worksite in Sierra Leone after having contracted for additional medical services, PPE, that sort of thing for its employees who were going to be on the ground and potentially exposed to Ebola. Well, in this case, the CBCA refused the contractor's attempts to charge these additional outbreak-related costs to the government. Um, CBCA cited the risk all allocation that's inherent in firm fixed-price contracts in doing so, and the Federal Circuit later affirmed, albeit without an opinion. This case really serves as a warning to fixed price contractors, reminding everyone that no matter the exigent circumstances, you know, in the Ebola pandemic or things of similar severity, firm fixed price contracts generally place the risk of increased performance costs on the contractor. So this case was very interesting as it, like I said, it came down in April, 2020 and seems easily generalizable to apply to, for example, contractors attempting to charge personal protective equipment and other coronavirus related costs to a firm fixed price contract. And this case makes clear that without express government approval of these increased costs, the contractor performs at risk. Absolutely. And, and that's why communication is especially important, where unforeseen developments affect a fixed price contract. While the government in litigation might have an argument that the contractor accepted the risk surrounding those unforeseen developments, especially after the fact, the government may be more sympathetic if the issues are raised in real time while they're affecting performance, the government is, is relying upon. Of course, the Pernix decision is probably not a good example of that because the contractor did try to work it through with the government. But still, that is a best practice. Document the concerns with the government, seek guidance where possible. We should mention Section 3610 of the CARES Act. That was a discretionary authority that agencies could, but were not required to, use to provide relief to contractors to cover costs associated with paid leave. Arnold and Porter and PubK have spent a lot of time on the nuances of Section 3610 and the executive branch implementation of that law. In this context, the most important thing to note is that it was a special authority and it was discretionary. So when we talk about lessons learned from the pandemic and the cases, contractors should not assume that Congress will provide similar authority again. We'll be watching for reported decisions that involve Section 3610 
and covering any important implications of those decisions. And speaking of decisions, that's a good segue to the focus of our discussion today. We sit here in late January 2023, coming up on three years after the pandemic first started to impact contractors. We're seeing over the past six months or so a trickle of decisions concerning disputes related to the impact of the pandemic on contractors. This is by no means a large body of case law at this point. So why, Amanda, do you think that is? Well, the optimistic interpretation is that contractors and the government have been able to simply work it out. But more, more likely, this is just reflective of how long the claims and disputes process takes to reach a final decision. Just to quickly walk through the process. First, you need to have a some certain amount of damages before you can even submit a claim to a contracting officer and get the process started. Then the contracting officer has 60 days to issue a final decision. And that time period is often repeatedly extended because um, all contracting officers have to do is say a later date certain that they plan to issue their decision to get around this rule. Only once you have that contracting officer's final decision in hand can the matter proceed to the board or the Court of Federal Claims, where even a tight discovery schedule is not likely to lead, to lead to a written opinion within several months or even a year. You know, you add that to the six-year statute of limitations applicable to Contract Disputes Act claims, and I think it's fair to say that we're really only at the beginning of the wave of COVID-related claims decisions coming out of the boards in COFSI. And, and as I noted, we're, we're seeing cases, although they are still relatively limited at this time, and they by no means cover the waterfront in terms of the universe of issues implicated by the pandemic and the effects of contractors. Right. Well, for the reasons I just outlined, I, I think we've really yet to see the nitty gritty run of the mill changes clause type claims reach a final decision. I expect that discovery for these cases are currently ongoing, and we'll see them in the coming months or years. One, one thing I have noticed, it's hard to miss, is that we have no shortage of cases dealing with contracts to procure plastic gloves. Could you walk us through those cases? <laughs> yes, I believe we're up to at least two decisions at CBCA and two at COPSI, um, but they're all reaching the same conclusion. So thankfully, we can discuss them all together. For reference, I'm talking about the Orsa Technologies cases at CBCA. These are numbers 7141 and 7142. And at the court, we have the American Medical Equipment case, COPSI number 21-1553C, and the Servant Health et al. case, which is COPSI numbers 21-1373C et al. So in short, the VA issued a bunch of solicitations in late 2020 and early 2021 seeking contractors who already had plastic gloves on hand. The bad joke writes itself. When the quick delivery date arrived for these gloves, it became clear that several companies bid for and received contracts despite not having the gloves on hand and instead intending to procure them. But of course, look at the timing here, the, the global shortage of PPE and the supply chain and shipping issues then prevented these companies from promptly obtaining the gloves to meet the agreed upon delivery deadline. And the government terminated a bunch of these companies for default. 
The companies argued that their failure to perform was caused by excusable delay given these worldwide issues, but both CBCA and COPSI disagreed, pointing out that the excusable delay clause is supposed to protect the contractor against the unexpected. But here, the contractors were fully aware of the challenges arising from the COVID-19 pandemic at the time of contracting. So because these contractors should have known the difficulties impacting PPE procurements at the time of contracting, and because the solicitations expressly stated that the VA expected contractors to already have the gloves on hand, both forums ruled that the contractor's failure to perform here was inexcusable. Amanda, we know we're going to see decisions that are going to be unfair to contractors, or are going to seem unfair to contractors. But I think these plastic glove cases don't strike me as particularly unfair because of the unique fact in each of those cases, the contractor was committing at the time of contracting after the onset of the pandemic that they would have the gloves on hand and then failed to meet that commitment. You think that's fair? Right. I The facts here were particularly egregious. I imagine that the contractors thought that they could get the gloves in time and that it wouldn't matter. But when it came down to it, that's not what their contract required. I have a lot more sympathy for the contractor in per the pernix Serica decision, who obviously did not see the Ebola outbreak coming or the necessity to procure all of that PPE for its employees to ensure their safety. Right. Okay, Amanda, beyond the decisions on the glove cases, are there other decisions yet on excusable delays or delays a contractor claims are excusable related to the impact of the COVID pandemic? Yes, there is the central construction case coming out of the ASBCA. That's number 62624. This is distinguishable from the gloves cases in that it involves a contract entered into before the pandemic. So this case involved a design-build contract that was awarded in 2019. Construction was supposed to be completed by May 2020, and two weeks after that scheduled end date in June 2020, the contractor still had completed 0% of the work. So the government terminated them for default. The contractor generally pled that its failure to perform should be excused due to the pandemic. The contractor repeatedly pointed to, quote, how bad the situation was and complained that a supplier's factory had been shut down. But the board found that the record did not support the contractor's claims. For one, a supplier's factory being shut down should not impact the design element of the project. And the record showed that on February 28th, 2020, so over halfway through the performance period, but still before the outbreak of the pandemic in the US, the contractor had only made one submission, which the government had rejected as unacceptable. So the ASBCA really was not buying that the real source of the contractor's woes was the pandemic. So you could say in a sense, it was somewhat egregious facts for the contractor, but still, are there lessons that other contractors could take from this decision? Sure, I, I think it ties back to the advice we were giving clients at the beginning of the pandemic, it's important not only to record any increased cost you experience, but also to make sure you document exactly why the pandemic was the source of these increased costs. It's easy to imagine a situation where those companies with the glove contracts actually did have them on hand, 
but shipping delays made it impossible to get the gloves to the government without renting a truck and driving them across the country. And then the contractor would be submitting the extra costs for that rental truck, right? And the same thing with the design build construction contractor in this case, it's very likely that the pandemic did in fact impede its efforts to perform, but you can't just use COVID as a catch-all excuse. The, the boards and COPSI have made clear that the same rigorous standards that apply to any claim change or increased cost applies equally to pandemic impacts. And that means proving that the increased costs were actually not foreseeable and in fact resulted from the pandemic. One, one thing that we as practitioners and, and the contracting industry have been focused on is the government's potential reliance on the sovereign acts doctrine to deny relief to contractors. I think it's fair to say we've been worried about that since the start of the pandemic. Maybe we start with a brief overview of that doctrine, and then if we could walk through any early decisions applying the doctrine to the impacts of the COVID pandemic. Sure. Well, the, the Sovereign Acts Doctrine results from the government's unique role as both a contracting party and a sovereign. It provides that the U.S. government can't be held liable for an obstruction to the performance of a contract that resulted from the government's public and general acts as sovereign versus any actions it may take as a contracting party. So a stereotypical example is when a contractor's contract with one agency is impacted or delayed by an action taken by another agency. When the Sovereign Acts Doctrine applies, the contractor is only entitled to schedule relief and not any increased costs that result. The SBCA has issued two decisions addressing Sovereign Acts Doctrine to actions taken in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In the first, which is J.E. Dunn Construction Company, ASBCA number 62936, a contractor submitted a claim for the cost impact of a 14-day quarantine requirement that both New York and the relevant Army-based had imposed on persons traveling from high-risk states. We saw quarantine requirements like this all across the country, especially during 2020. When New York State later reduced the quarantine period from 14 days to three days as the pandemic progressed, the Army, including that particular base, kept the 14-day rule. This obviously caused the contractor to incur a bunch of extra costs, but the ASBCA denied the contractor's appeal seeking these costs, finding the quarantine to be a sovereign act as it did not apply only to the contractor, but also to all visitors equally that wanted to come to the Army base. Interestingly, I thought, regarding the contractor's argument that the Army should have adopted New York's looser three-day quarantine period versus the longer, more stringent 14-day period, the ASBCA had an evidentiary uh, quarrel with this, finding that the contractor failed to demonstrate that any of its employees actually would have tested negative after only three days and therefore would have avoided the extra 10 days of cost impact. That struck me as particularly unfair. The And admittedly, I'm not as well versed in, in the background of the case, but it seems the board essentially required the contractor to show after the fact that its employees would have tested negative and been able to go on the job if the government had imposed a different standard. So we can quibble with whether that was right or just under the circumstances, but it again underscores the importance of contemporaneous documentation. 
I think that the board was really going to be hesitant at questioning the Army's exercise of its sovereign discretion as to the number of quarantine days that were necessary to address the public health emergency. I, I agree that that mm. feels unfair, but um, I also think that it's fair to say that this is a pretty clear precedent that quarantines that are generally applicable to the public and anyone who wants to access a government site are going to be viewed as a sovereign act. And it's not the only precedent now, right? No, not at all. Three days after that decision, ASBCA issued a second decision applying the Sovereign Act's defense to deny a contractor claim for increased cost incurred due to pandemic-related restrictions. So this one is Aptum Federal Services, ASBCA number 62982. In this one, a design-build contractor was unable to access an Air Force base for approximately two months when the commander closed the base to non-operationally urgent personnel, um, and that restriction applied to the contractor. The government did extend the period of performance for the contract commensurate with this lockout, but the government did not compensate the contractor for the additional time. Um, so it was two months of carrying its employees and all those associated costs. And the contractor went on and submitted a claim for those costs. The board, again, in this case, found that the base closure was generally applicable. It was not directed at the contractor and it rendered the contractor's performance impossible. Therefore, under the established legal test, it qualified as a sovereign act. The contractor in this case um, tried to argue that performance was not truly impossible because the commander could have simply permitted them to access the base. But the board found that that, quote, conflated the government as sovereign and the government as contracting party. So the government as contracting party could not permit the contractor to access the base without violating the rule established by the government as sovereign. So just like in the other one, the board denied the contractor's appeal. And, and, and I recognize, Amanda, the board was following, at least it said it was following precedent. But, but to me, that decision is troubling in a sense that the doctrine was applied based on a local decision. It's, it's one thing to apply the doctrine to a decision that comes from Congress in a statute that's generally applicable or to the White House uh, policy that comes out of the White House or even the Pentagon, whether it's a policy or a regulation, but it's discouraging I think, for the contracting industry for it to apply to a customer's decision that is arguably so close to the contracting function. And I'll say that the decision makes clear that the base closure came from the commander of the military base, and that was a separate position than the contracting officer. Yeah. So a final point on the Sovereign Acts Doctrine, at least a final point for now, is I found in many situations, agencies took actions in response to the pandemic that went above and beyond that those were that were at least arguably above and beyond those dictated by the underlying Sovereign Acts. So I expect contractors will be latching on to those incremental decisions and in trying to avoid the doctrine to, to block their relief. So it'll be interesting to see if we get any cases that help with the line drawing in that area. What's a sovereign act? And in which case did the government go beyond uh, the, 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 the actions that are dictated by the sovereign act and perhaps uh, breach the contract or breach uh, an implied duty of, of good faith and fair dealing and so forth. So that's and I'll add in here that I think it's going to be interesting, again, 
to see how the boards and the courts focus on the second element of the Sovereign Acts defense, the, the impossibility one. The Aptum case and the J.E. Dunn construction case both, I think, danced around the lines of what it truly means to be impossible to perform when you're talking about kind of discretionary government actions imposed in the wake of a pandemic. So I will personally be interested to see if future decisions also latch on to that prong of the test. Another issue that can arise in these situations where the government provides direction to a contractor to account for the direct and indirect pandemic impacts is whether the government's direction amounts to a termination for convenience, perhaps a partial termination or even a complete termination. I understand there's a recent Armed Services Board decision that looks at that issue. Yes, this is the Heartland Energy Partners decision. It's ASBCA number 62979. In this case, the board considered a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers task order that was awarded against a commercial items contract for physical security services, and it had 11 firm fixed price CLINs. Now, in March 2020, the government instructed the contractor to stop performing four out of those 11 firm fixed price CLINs. These involved travel and in-person meetings that didn't comply with then-current DOD guidance related to the pandemic. This order came from a contract specialist who didn't actually have authority to modify the contract, um, but nonetheless, the specialist instructed the contractor to only invoice for services that it actually delivered under these CLINs, rather than the normal practice of billing one-twelfth of the CLIN amounts each month. So although the contracting officer never officially ratified this contracting specialist's direction, the contractor followed orders and stopped working on four out of, again, the 11 CLINs. The government later attempted to negotiate a change in scope to the affected CLINs that would result in a reduced payment, but the parties ultimately didn't negotiate a resolution before the end of the task order performance. So the contractor went forward and submitted a claim for the unpaid firm fixed priced amount. And when it received a deemed denial, or I guess did not receive a denial of the claim, uh, appealed to the ASPCA. The board found that the contract specialist direction to the contractor to stop work under these four CLINs constituted a constructive partial termination for convenience. A couple things about this decision were interesting to me. First, the board said that the fact that the contract specialist didn't say that what he, that what he was doing was terminating the contract for convenience was immaterial. Also, the fact that the contract specialist didn't actually have authority to do so also wasn't relevant to the board because the contractor followed his direction and did, in fact, stop working. The board noted that if the task order wasn't constructively terminated for convenience, then the contractor actually would have been in breach of its duty to perform those four cleanse. Mm. So the board concluded that since constructive termination for convenience is, quote, a legal fiction, the government's actions can amount to a constructive T4C in circumstances where the government didn't actually procedurally correctly terminate the work. So the result here was that because a partial T4C of a firm fixed price contract turns terminated cleanse into cost reimbursement cleanse, the contractor was only due payment for the work that it actually performed under those cleanse and nothing more. And so it, it it presented its ultimately at the end of the day, it recovered on a cost basis under those CLINs. Yep. As is typical um, in termination for convenience of firm fixed price contracts. Sure. 
And then lastly, Amanda, there's the issue that has gained much attention over the last year of whether a contractor with a fixed price contract is entitled to relief or should be provided relief where the contractor's cost to perform, especially cost of supplies and commodities, increased substantially in a way that the parties did not anticipate when entering into the contract. The government and particularly the Department of Defense has been active in issuing guidance in this area on the impact of inflation on the supply chain. This is a topic for a broader discussion, but I understand there was a recent decision in which the Armed Services Board considered the implications of DOD guidance on the contractor's right to a price adjustment. Yes, and for those following along, the case citation, this is the appeal of ACE, and it's ASBCA number 63224. So if Everyone will remember uh, in July 2020, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment issued this memo that purported to give guidance regarding the impact of the pandemic and inflation on government contracts. It's titled Guidance for the, for the Assessment of Other COVID-19 Related Impacts and Costs. And I, myself and I think that lots of other people in the industry were excited when we saw this memo because we thought it would provide real guidance. Um, unfortunately, I think that it didn't turn out to be nearly as helpful as everyone was hoping. So in relevant part, and I'm just going to read the quote here because this is what the case turned on. This memo says that contracting officers are granted discretion subject to the availability of funds to modify contracts. And it says EG under FAR 52-243-1 changes and its, uh, and its applicable alternatives to reflect changes to the government's needs as a result of COVID-19. Okay, so in this case, the appeal of ACE, uh, a firm fixed price contractor that provided parts associated with cruise missiles, uh, experienced a large price increase from its vendors over the course of the pandemic. Contractor submitted a claim for these increased costs, which again, were firm fixed price under its contract. And after the government denied the claim, submitted an appeal that took the interesting tack of citing this memo and arguing that the government breached its contract by failing to follow the memo, which it claimed required the government to modify its contract to reflect the higher prices that it actually experienced due to all of these pandemic-related factors. The board refused to take this bait. It dismissed the appeal for failure to state a claim, reasoning that this memo was not incorporated into the contract in any way, and regardless, it only grants the contracting officer discretion to modify contracts, quote, to reflect changes to the government's needs. It doesn't actually, by its terms, speak to increased costs that the contractor experienced. Also, that discretion cannot create any binding contractual rights. So once again, this firm fixed price contractor learned that fixed price means fixed price even during the course of a pandemic. Thanks, Amanda. This has been great. Hopefully, we can have you back to discuss takeaways from future decisions if, as we expect, we continue to see more and more cases in this area, and perhaps some with more interesting and, and challenging situations for the tribunals to wrestle with. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks again to Amanda. In the last case we discussed, Ace Electronics, the contractor relied on DOD guidance to seek a price adjustment to its contract. The contractor there relied specifically on the July 2nd, 2020 DOD memo, Guidance for Assessment of Other COVID-19-Related Impacts and Costs. 
That memo provided that contractors under fixed price contracts generally bear the risk of cost increases, including increases resulting from PPE costs, social distancing, and supplier delays and inefficiencies. Those are examples cited in that memo. It also granted contracting officers discretion to modify contracts to reflect changes to the government's needs due to the pandemic. ACE's claim, which was on appeal, had been submitted in February of 2022, and so ACE was relying on earlier guidance. As Amanda explained, the key holding was that the guidance standing alone did not entitle the contractor to relief. As we now know, and as we covered on the podcast, DOD subsequently issued additional memos on May 25th and September 9th of last year. The May guidance from Defense Pricing and Contracting reinforced that contractors under fixed-price contracts generally bear the risk of cost increases, including those resulting from inflation. DOD said that changed economic circumstances standing alone are not a contracting officer-directed change and therefore do not entitle a contractor to a request for equitable adjustment. DOD also provided guidance on the crafting of economic price adjustment clauses for new contracts and those subject to negotiation, like modifications adding new scope. In a nutshell, DOD stated contractual price increases and decreases should be based on indices and formulas agreed upon during negotiations. Flexibility should not necessarily apply to everything under the contract and should be targeted. There should be a ceiling for price increases. Profit on EPA increases are generally not warranted and the right to payment is contingent on available funding. Then in its September guidance, DOD acknowledged that even for fixed-price contracts, quote, there may be circumstances where an accommodation can be reached by mutual agreement of the contracting parties, perhaps to address acute impacts on small business and other suppliers, end quote. DOD gives the examples of schedule relief and amending contractual requirements. The September memo also noted that agencies within DOD have authority under Public Law 85804 to provide extraordinary contractual relief. DOD indicated it would entertain requests to employ that authority subject to available funding. And lastly, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2023, which was signed into law on December 23rd of last year, includes a provision, Section 822, that's intended to authorize some targeted inflation relief for contractors. Section 822 amends Public Law 85804, which is codified at 50 U.S.C. Section 1431. The new law provides contracting officers authority to grant price adjustments under Department of Defense contracts and subcontracts where, due solely to economic inflation, actual costs of performance exceed the price of the contract or subcontract. Importantly, this relief is contingent on Congress specifically appropriating funding to support the relief. DOD has 90 days to issue guidance addressing how it will consider and respond to requests. That guidance is going to be critical. Here's what we know for now. First, the authority is discretionary. The law does not require agencies or contracting officers to provide relief. Second, the authority is temporary. It expires at the end of this year. There presumably will be a rush of applications once the guidance is available. Third, the authority can be used to provide relief to subcontractors. Subcontractors will be able to submit requests through the prime contractor or directly to the contracting officer with their own certification. Fourth, the authority is tied to contractor and subcontractor costs. It's limited to actual costs of performing, and the text would suggest that the contractor will be required to show that costs exceed the contractual price. The section states, quote, the Secretary of Defense may make an amendment or modification to an eligible contract when, 
due solely to economic inflation, the cost to the prime contractor of performing such eligible contract is greater than the price of such eligible contract, end quote. And there's comparable language for subcontractors. Tying relief to costs incurred, and specifically a comparison of costs incurred to contractual price, raises a slew of questions. Can relief be applied at the contract line item or CLIN level? Can commercial contractors be eligible for relief? And if so, what will be required for them to show that their costs exceed the contractual price? Will it be akin to the type of information required in the termination for convenience of a fixed price contract? And so on and so on. Fifth and finally, the law dictates that relief is contingent. It's contingent on availability of funding, as mentioned, and continued performance by the contractor. Now, the law does state that the contingency is as applicable, which DOD may take to mean that performance is not required if the contract has already been completed to the agency's satisfaction. So, Section 822, it's by no means blanket relief that will make all contractors whole, but it may end up providing some critical relief to some contractors. We'll provide an update once DOD issues the required guidance, and if there are other decisions of note in this area, we'll invite Amanda back to discuss them. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. If you're interested in learning more about these subjects, please check out our show notes, where you'll find links to the background materials and other information related to the subjects that we covered in this episode. Thanks again to Amanda, and thanks to Bill Olver for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Bonafide Needs. We hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts and look for new episodes soon. Until then. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer.